Mask Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. Football fans, it's time to go on the record for this week's matches in pro and college football with just one catch. We're only interested in underdogs. Who can keep it close, if not pull the outright upset? Time to find out. It's Three Dog Thursday. Now here's your host, T.J. Reed. Well, here we are. We have survived Super Bowl 53. I'm still somewhat convinced at this point that Kevin and I and my 10-year-old twins might have been able to score a touchdown even though the Patriots and the Rams only scored one. But we're here. Hello there. Welcome into the only show that is devoted every week to the underdog in college basketball in this case. Oh, it seems kind of sad to say that, that we don't have pro or college football any longer because the Super Bowl has been put to bed. The champs are the champs again. The New England Patriots for the third time in five years for the sixth time overall have won it. So we're putting the football to bed. We're talking lots of basketball, and I am your somewhat capable host. He is senior handicapper and writer from VegasInsider.com, Kevin Rogers. I've been waiting for the better part of about four days now for Three Dog Thursday to let you just tee off and take a two-handed swing figuratively with a Louisville Slugger baseball bat about this Super Bowl. How are you, first of all? Are you in a good mood? Are you ready to pick some college basketball later in the show, sir? Yeah, I'm in a good mood. I mean, I feel better than last week. I mean, honestly, we were taping the show. I wasn't feeling great, but I feel better this week, so that's positive. Uh, I mean, when you look at this game from Sunday, you know, a lot of people, they they want to destroy it because there wasn't scoring. There was a lot of punting. I get it. But you know what? In the end, it was still 3-3 going to the fourth. It was 20-20 going to the fourth. People feel differently, even though it's the same thing, in a sense, with the with the game being tied. And was it boring? I'll put it this way. It wasn't exciting, but it was still competitive. It was still The game was still in the balance going to the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, which is all you can ask for. And that's what we've gotten with the Patriots all nine times. They've all been interesting <laughs> in the fourth quarter. So right. you can't ask for anything more than that from the Patriots. And you know what? The, the Rams ended up they, – they had, the Rams had their chances. They didn't cash in on the early interception. They didn't cash in on the missed field goal. And – Goff led them down on that drive to tie the game. They had a drop touchdown pass. Uh, Goff underthrew a pass. They, they were there. They had a shot. You know, they had a shot, and, and they couldn't uh, take care of business, but they still hung, and you know what? They lost, and that, that's it. All right, so I have so many different things that uh, that I've been wanting to talk about. I, I don't know that we have time for all of them uh, here because otherwise it would be a two-hour show. I want to tell you up front, though, lots of college basketball today, including Adam Zagoria will be here. Uh, the Zags blog, also longtime writer in New York nationally. He's in the New York Times uh, with some articles this week. Wants to talk a lot about Duke and St. John's. Kevin, I don't know this. In previous broadcast duties or on previous occasions, have you ever been inside Cameron Indoor Stadium where the Duke Blue Devils play home basketball games it is obviously one of the cathedrals of college basketball one of the most well-known venues for a home team in any sport have you ever been in uh, cameron indoor stadium by the way never i've only the only um arena i've been through that area i've been to chapel hill i've been to the dean dome i've okay. never been to cameron indoor now i can say this i have been inside cameron indoor and we're going to talk about that with adam because it was his first trip in this past saturday when duke played st john's and he's got a great story and i kind of relate a couple of things about that but I'm, I'm actually a little jealous of you. I have been 
to Chapel Hill, but I have not been in the Dean Dome where the Tar Heels play. I've not been in Rupp Arena. I've not been in Foghallen Fieldhouse. I have been in the Carrier Dome. There, But there are some cathedrals of college basketball that I think i got to get inside of and go see, uh, even if there's not a game going on. Assembly Hall in Bloomington. Uh, the old Pauley Pavilion has now been remodeled by UCLA. But, I mean, there are some great facilities in college basketball and Cameron is clearly one of them and it's clearly an advantage and I, I know you're you're anti-Duke for a lot of different reasons and some of it may be how the Cameron crazies act and what they do uh, but we'll talk about that with uh, with Kevin coming up and of course Duke has the huge showdown coming on Saturday whenever you're listening to us Duke and Virginia the big Saturday night pregame or uh, primetime game uh, matchup the rematch of a great Duke win by two at home two best teams in the ACC two of the best teams in college basketball playing Saturday. So we have lots to talk about. Adam will talk about that venue. Um, And so some college basketball with him. I'm going to get a colleague of mine on as well. Uh, Dave Woloshin will be here. One of my one of my broadcasting mentors, Kevin, he will be here to help me go through group therapy. Uh, He and I together as Memphis is back in action on Thursday night with Cincinnati as an underdog against top 25 Cincinnati. Memphis off a game Saturday in Tampa where I am based. I was there. I was at the game when Memphis fell behind 19 to nothing and 27 to 1 in the first half of a college basketball game. Dave Woloshin was on the call on Memphis Radio. He and I are going to talk about that game. We're going to talk briefly about Penny Hardaway taking over as the Memphis coach, this Cincinnati game. It, it is wild. So he will join me later in the show. So that's lots of college basketball. Let's get back to the Super Bowl and a couple of specifics because I want to weigh in on a couple of the things. You you said, uh, look, it wasn't the most interesting game. I, I would say here, too, that in an era of the NFL being nonstop offense and almost no defense being played, we saw that Kansas City Rams game on the, on the Monday night, Kevin, where nobody could seemingly stop anybody it was refreshing that's the word that I want to use that we saw two defenses playing at a pretty high level some of it was bad offense at times but Wade Phillips Kevin you agree with me he had it dialed in stopping Brady and the Patriots and Belichick and the new Dolphins coach down where you are Brian Flores had coached up his team, his defense, he and Flores dialing up the calls and Jared Goff and the Rams couldn't move the ball couldn't score either I, I actually I thought it was refreshing that we saw some defense being played. It was back to the 70s, the 80s, and the early 90s of play some defense. Did you find it uh, kind of that way, too, that it was good to see some D? Yeah. You know, to bring up that Rams-Chiefs game, I think that was a bad thing for the NFL because now the expectation is we have to see 40, 50-point 40, games from each team. It's like we don't need to see that. You know, we really don't. It gets kind of ridiculous after a while. These teams are scoring in a minute, you know, and even, you know, if you even check out, you know, in college football, what was that, West Virginia, Oklahoma game. Right. It's, just, it's just ridiculous. And that's where that gets out of control, and people really want that. And then it goes the polar opposite, where it's a 3-3 game. Uh, you know, it's 3-3 three, it's three to three, uh, going to the fourth quarter. And that's not good enough. So it's like nothing's ever good enough for all these fans. I don't know what they want. Look, the, the Rams, again, like I said earlier, they had a shot. They were right there. Would you rather have a 3-3 game go to the fourth or a 49-10 game go to the fourth? You know, which one do you want? Do you right. want a blowout? Luckily, the last three years of the Patriots, think about this. 3-3 going to the fourth against the Rams. Close game with the Eagles at the end. 
the Falcons game was a blowout to the Patriots at the greatest comeback ever in Super Bowl history. But, you know, all those games Seahawks, in the fourth quarter. Seahawks and uh, Seahawks Patriots decided on the one-yard yeah. line in the final 30 they, seconds they with the interception. They watch in the fourth quarter. Yeah, there's uh, there's no disputing that. And uh, again, uh, both sides were getting their stops, and and, uh, and there was a drama. I mean, it was the first ever Super Bowl without a touchdown in the first three quarters. Uh, it was the lowest scoring one, obviously, ever at three to three going into the fourth quarter, and it finished thirteen to three. Credit to the Patriots. All right, to you. Um, it, it, we see the television ratings are down. Uh, clearly, there were 10 million less people watching than were watching four years ago. So do you believe America at this point is fatigued by how much we are seeing the Patriots in all the big games, in the Super Bowl, in the AFC Championship game? Is America over Belichick, Brady, and seeing their success? What's your opinion, Kevin? No, I don't think so. I think that, again, this is like the conversation we had a month ago with Alabama-Clemson. The reason why people shut the game off is the game stunk. You know, Clemson blew them out, and it was boring. That, that's what, that was a different kind of boring where the, you already knew who won the game. Here, you didn't know who was going to win the game. So I don't know how you shut a game off when you don't know who's going to win it. And, you know, if you have Saints, Chiefs, are you really excited? I, I, I mean, I guess you have Mahomes in there. And, and, again, I don't go back to the, well, the Rams didn't deserve to be there. They deserve to be there. They won the NFC. Yes. The Saints fans will stop the crying and all. We're not going to watch the game. And all. Let's don't watch the game. You know, let's don't watch. Go away then if you don't want to watch the game. You know, and that, that just is really annoying. Where it's like, just get over it already. You know, but, you know, besides that point, I don't know, really know which teams you need to get in there to get people interested or not having the Patriots. I don't know how people don't want them in there because if you don't like the Patriots, you want to see them lose. So I don't know how having two random teams in there gets people excited. It's a good point about Alabama because it is the same thing right now. And we're going to talk about Duke a lot on this show. And Duke seems to be there every year as one of the top teams and contending and in the Final Four, etc. But I think it is good. You almost have to have the love-hate team, which New England has become. But clearly, the NFL has to be concerned that the ratings in particular the last couple of years have slipped, even with an exciting finish in that Philadelphia uh, uh, Patriots Super Bowl two years ago. And, and not as an exciting as a game, but still an exciting finish this year. The crowd, not as much. Still, though, well, I mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about 100 million people watching. It, it is by far, by 75%, it's more audience than anything else that will be on network TV uh, for the year, so it's not hurting that bad. All right, so you raised something else that I think that's interesting. Many have said, well, if the Saints had been in there, this would have been such a better Super Bowl because there's no way with the Saints offense that New England would have held them to three points. Sean Payton, so much more experienced than Sean McVay, do you believe, hypothetically, that a Saints-Patriots Super Bowl would have been very high-scoring and a much better game? Or do you believe that New England could have handcuffed New Orleans kind of the same way that they handcuffed the Saints or the, the Rams? I'm going to give you a really bad answer. I can't tell you. I don't know. You know, And, and when people say, well, the Saints definitely would have, would have been a better game, how do you know the Patriots could have beat them 35-3? Like, you don't know that. Right. Nobody knows that. You know, yes, you have Drew Brees out there. Drew Brees didn't have great numbers down the stretch. He did Maybe not. He didn't throw interceptions, even though he did throw a key interception in the NFC Championship. But there's absolutely no proof at all saying it would have been a better Super Bowl with the Saints. If the Saints played the Chiefs, it could have been totally different just right. because you have two different teams. But seeing what the Patriots did to the Rams and 
the Saints are still a pretty good team defensively, that they could have still shut down Tom Brady. They, they could have done the same thing the Rams did. So there, I don't have any proof of that. That's why it's so hard and ridiculous for people to say, well, if the Saints were there, it would have been a better game. Maybe well, there was more scoring, but maybe the Patriots blow and, them out. And maybe it wouldn't have been more scoring because I love this because there's enough there's enough people right now that are squawking about it. Uh, there, are, there, there are fanboys in the New Orleans media that have been going on and on. Oh, the Saints would have never had a game where they wouldn't have gotten a touchdown. Uh, did we all watch the Thursday night game against the Dallas Cowboys in Dallas where they couldn't get a touchdown and they were beaten scoring only six points? It can happen. And the Cowboys, by the way, didn't have exactly Hall of Fame defenders. They just had a great plan on a Thursday night and found a way right after Thanksgiving, the first week in December, to stuff Drew Brees, Alvin Kamara, uh, Michael Thomas and company in a garbage can collectively and duct tape around it and say, we're just going to we're going to seal you off. You're not going to score any touchdowns on us. It can happen. Um, and I'm with you. And look, I, I know I work with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so obviously I'm not the most impartial person when it comes to the rivalry with the Saints. But again, they're they're not the only aggrieved fan base by a bad call. Raider fan is still unhappy almost 20 years later over the Charles Woodson Brady Tuck rule. They believe they were robbed. Uh, the same the Cowboys with Des Bryant against the Packers. You documented that that Fiesta Bowl in Miami. They're still talking about Miami, Ohio State and the blown call on fourth down in overtime. Get over it. E- either that or let's send a few hundred thousand pacifiers, crying towels, baby food, whatever we need for the crybabies in New Orleans so that they they can get over it for next football season. It was a bad call in a game that you should have won long before that or after that. Get over it. Move on. I, I'm with oh, you oh, on By, that. by yeah. the way, just one more note yeah. to bring that up too about, about the tuck rule. That the Raider fans, I'll be honest with you, they still could have a gripe with it because the game was over. They recovered that fumble. That's right. The game was over. And then it's like, what is this rule? You're just coming out with a rule that no one's ever heard of before. And then, yes, the Patriots had to go down in a snowstorm, and Adam Vinatieri had to kick the tying field goal and the winning field goal. But the Saints, even after that pass interference that wasn't called, they still had the ball, and they still kicked the field goal. Like, they still didn't have the game taken away from them. That's right. So it's, that's why it's, it's just all it's and And had the ball first in overtime, even after all of this, and could have gone down and scored yeah, a touchdown and won it, and we litigated, we litigated that. Yeah, you and, I, you and I agree. All right, a couple more on the Super yeah. Bowl. Kevin Rogers with me. We'll get to college basketball a little bit later. Picks coming for the Thursday night games. We're going to talk about the Saturday Titanic games all the way through the NCAA tournament and the Final Four. We're here on Three Dog Thursday with some great insight uh, for some of these different games. All right, so... Uh, in terms of legacy here, uh, I mean, th- this once again underscores the brilliance of Belichick. And I don't, I don't live in New England, obviously. I've never worked for the Patriots. No one is propping me up to say this. But for them to win an AFC championship game in Kansas City in the freezing cold, that was offense for offense, blow for blow, touchdown versus touchdown, lead change after lead change in the fourth quarter, uh, the final five possessions of the game, everybody scored, including New England scoring on the first possession of overtime to win that way in that moment and then be built to way the, the way that they won the Super Bowl 
How can anybody deny? For I mean, I know it's the Lombardi Trophy. I know that Chuck Knoll won four of them in six years. Uh, on and on down the list uh, of great coaches from George Hallis to Bill Walsh to Tom Landry to Bill Parcells. Uh, on and on with all the great Super Bowl winning coaches and, and championship coaches. How do you deny Belichick? How do you deny the legacy of Belichick and Brady and what they've done as we put a cap on the season, Kevin? There's no way to, you know, and I understand Brady didn't uh, throw a touchdown pass in the Super Bowl and his first pass was intercepted, but he made the big throw when he had to with Gronkowski. It still amazes me that there was only one play in the red zone the whole game. That still is, is one of the most amazing feats <laughs> ever in, in any football game to have that. In, in, in a game that was in a controlled environment indoors, was, you can't even blame weather for it. But uh, Julian Edelman found his way open like every single time, and they did what they had to do. They did enough to win, and love them or hate them, like, you can't take it away from them. And what's funny about the Patriots is that this is a team you can argue could have lost six Super Bowls, but also if things went their way, they could be 9-0 and in these Super Bowls. So it really is amazing how back and forth a lot of these went, and they've been on the right side you know, more than they have been on the wrong side. But, yeah, it comes down to several plays that they have made that have gotten them championships and then several plays that the other team made that lost the Patriots championships. But, hey, David Tyree doesn't make that catch. Mario Manningham doesn't make that catch. They probably win two more against the Giants. Sure. And then again, you know, the argument can be made at the other end that they found ways at the end of the first ever one with the Rams. And, uh, and you know, keep in mind that the, the first two that they won, they won with dramatic field goals at the very end uh, to clinch it. Of course, Falcon fan to this day and for the next 25 years is going to say we had them, Kevin. We had them 28 to three after the interception returned by Robert Alford. Uh, and by the way, the Falcons this week are releasing Robert Alford, but he was a he was a Super Bowl hero two years ago. Ran that pick six back. It's twenty eight to three, and you can't put him away. All right, so that leads to one more before we wrap the NFL conversation. This is obvious uh, to me. You can't kill these guys. You can't count them out. It doesn't matter who leaves as a coordinator. It doesn't matter that Tom Brady's forty one or forty two or forty three. They have to be the favorites. Fast forward seven, eight months from now, don't they have to be the favorites when we roll into the 2019 NFL season that they're going to be there almost rubber stamp AFC title game, almost rubber stamp Super Bowl, they're going to be there. Are they not? You know, I'll I'll tell you something that's funny. I thought about this the other day, that the Patriots, when they lost to the Eagles last year, basically they could be like, that's fine, we'll be back next year. You know, it really is where I feel like in the NFC or everyone else in the league, you have a window, and that window shuts in one game. That if you don't win this one game, you're done. That happened with Carolina against Denver. They were favored in that Super Bowl. They got punked by the Broncos where Peyton Manning did nothing, but the defense shut them down. Oh, we'll be back next year. No, you won't. You're not going to do anything. And you see how Carolina's fallen off. You see how Atlanta has not gotten back. They, they were terrible this past season. You know, even the same thing with the Rams, that the Rams had their shot. Rams aren't going to the Super Bowl next year. No way. Like, they're not. Like, they had the chance. Even the Chiefs, to a certain extent, that they beat the Patriots at home. There's the win. Yep. Lost that opportunity, too. You had home, you had home field advantage against the Patriots. You still couldn't finish them off. So, you know, I look at a lot of these teams, and I say, you know what? You guys blew it. A lot of you blew it, that you, you could not slay the dragon, and this is what happened. 
the only team that got back there again was Seattle. They were the only ones that went back to back out of the NFC. And they should have won two championships. So oh, I, the Rams, the Falcons, the Eagles, the Panthers. Sorry, guys, you had your shot. That's done. Yeah, I mean, they have been an amazing New England model of consistency of being right back there and knowing all the components. And obviously, they have arguably the greatest quarterback ever at the controls, and they put the stuff around him. But you make you make a great point. Um, couple more too. I keep saying couple more. Do we do we really believe that Todd Gurley? Uh, wasn't healthy? Do we believe that Sean McVay suddenly became disenchanted with him for some reason late in the year? What do we believe that he was on the field for the first play of the game in the Super Bowl, then really not the rest of the first half, and then played a bunch in the second half? It was really weird about whether he was testing out an injury. They were never truthful about it. They still haven't been forthcoming. Does he need surgery? What was it? What, What do you make, conjecture here, of why the guy that was arguably the offensive uh, uh, maybe the offensive MVP behind Mahomes in the league was really a non-factor in the postseason in the Super Bowl. What do you make of that, real quick? There's either one or two explanations on to why Todd Gurley did not get all that playing time. Either Sean McVay was outthinking himself, or I hate to say this, it was a personal thing. Why would you not play Todd Gurley unless he has a torn ACL or he can't walk or run, why would you not play Todd Gurley in the most important game of your life? Why would you not give him 20 carries, give him opportunities? That's why I don't understand that either he's trying to totally out-scheme Bill Belichick, which didn't work. Why would you not play your best player? Especially, if I can interject, especially during the whole first half where they're struggling and punting the ball and he's standing there and not on the field. That it Very puzzling, and it hasn't been explained. That's your point, Kevin. Yeah, and this doesn't make any sense, and that's why I say either you're trying to outsmart everyone because you're the smartest coach in the NFL now, apparently, or it had to be something personal. There's no way injury trumps all of this. Why would it, Why would Todd Gurley not want to be in for the biggest game of his life? Why would he just want to be standing on the sidelines? He's probably not 100%. I'm sure he's not, but why would he not want to be in there and say, give me the ball? So that's what I just didn't understand. With that well, especially when he played as much as he did in the second half and the fourth quarter of the game, which, you know, maybe they realize we're only going to have him so much, so we're going to try to save him for the second half. But that uh, there has not been a definitive explanation as to why one of the premier weapons in the NFL was not being used more in that game. All right, so we put it to bed. New England, the champs again. Six of them for Brady and for Belichick. Will the Rams be back? Kevin makes a good point about whether they will be back or not. Kevin will be back later in the show. Kevin, stand by. Lots of college basketball coming up. Special guests to join me. We've got predictions uh, for the Thursday night games with the underdogs. We're going to talk about the Titanic Saturday of showdowns that include Duke and Virginia going head-to-head again and a rematch with Michigan and Wisconsin and all the great college basketball slate. It is Three Dog Thursday. Stay with us. Yes, I did mention earlier on Three Dog Thursday it is a form of group therapy because I was there, this man was there, the now-named Yingling Center, what was the Sun Dome in Tampa on Saturday, to watch my alma mater, the former Memphis State, now the University of Memphis, I don't know what that was against USF. The University of South Florida in Tampa led 19 to nothing, led 27 to 1 against my school. 
uh, and then goes on to a hang on and win. Well, the play-by-play voice of the Memphis Tigers, it's good to welcome back Dave Woloshin, who I have known for going on 30 years. I'm proud to say, great friend of mine, um, uh, on all the different occasions that I ask him to come on, he comes on even on an occasion like this where the Tigers are still smarting and trying to figure it out. So first of all, hello. It was great to see you briefly Saturday, but I still haven't figured out a few days later what in the world happened to Memphis, sir. I think we need Yingling to figure it out. That's <laughs> the only way I can answer that question. I still do not know. I mean, it it was it was crazy. You know, Memphis had a run at home the other day where they started off up on SMU thirteen nothing. I can go back to 1989. I know you rem- yep, will remember yep. this. Freedom Hall, Elliot Perry leading in the way, and the Tigers built a 24 nothing lead on the Louisville Cardinals, and they were ranked at the time when that occurred. But I've never seen a 27 to one. I've met you know this, especially against you, and then. You score 13 points in the first half. Oh, by the way, that equals the same amount of turnovers as you had in a half. I've never seen that, where you've got as many turnovers as you have points, and then you turned it around and score 65 points in the second half, and this senior Jeremiah Martin, who, until he got hurt last year, was actually leading the American Athletic Conference in scoring. He went bonkers. He took three shots, missed every shot in the first half, took 17 shots in the second half, made 13 of them. And in 20 minutes, ladies and gentlemen, Jeremiah Martin scored 41 points. Uh, I've never uh, seen that either. 41 and a half. After zero in the first half, which has got to be, we've got to keep checking. It's got to be some kind of a record for a zero-point half to then score 41 in the second half. I mean, I, I have been watching Memphis or Memphis State basketball for 40 years. You have as well. I've been watching college basketball for 40 years. I've been around the USF program. I did the play-by-play for 10 years. I've been around their program for 35 years. I, it was as bizarre a Saturday as you can imagine. And, and we'll say a couple of the numbers again. Memphis, 13 points in the first half, 65 points in the second half of the game. Still didn't find a way to win. And give USF Brian Gregory credit because they are now uh, respectable again. They haven't been for several years, really for about six or seven years since Stan Heath was the coach. They're back to respectability. They got the win. So the question for you is, Memphis is about to play Cincinnati. It's midweek when we're talking. Uh, you're coming well, from a press on. conference, before, before, right? right? Be, be, before you turn the page, let me give you one other number Please. that I find amazing. And this is about your old team. Not not your alma mater, but the old team that you did the games for. This is the second time this year, and I don't know if I've ever seen this before at all, ever, and it's happened twice with USF. They have had 30 turnovers. Memphis turned them over 30 times in the game, and they won, and it's the second time this year that that's happened. Do How we, that do we write twice. this? I'll go ahead and do the theme. Do, do, no. do, 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 do. Was this the Twilight yeah. Zone game of maybe the last decade in college basketball? I know it didn't get national notoriety, but all of those things happening in the same game it's almost like Rod Serling in black and white with the cigarettes yep. with trying to explain yep. that kind of game. So my question is, you've been to the press conference this week with Penny Hardaway. Uh, they're getting ready to play Cincinnati on Thursday night. It is Three Dog Thursday here. Memphis is the underdog. How do they turn the page, to use your phrase? How do they put that behind them? Back-to-back losses. They also didn't play well and lost at Tulsa. Uh, how do they put that behind them? How are they going to go about putting that behind them? 
Well, you you would have to think it's a mental thing at this point on the road. And hopefully they were not too psychologically damaged by 27-1. By the way they came back, I think they proved to themselves even that they can score a bunch of points by scoring 65 in the second half. They are 10-1 and at home, and the only loss was by 10 points to the number one team in the country, the University of Tennessee. Other than the one game that the Volunteers played at Tennessee in an SEC game, I think that's the closest anybody has been. So Memphis is good at home. And let, let me give you some other numbers that I think you might appreciate. In the American this year, there have been 54 conference road games. Only 14 of those road games have been uh, W's by the visiting team. 25% mm. of, uh, of the time... Uh, is 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 all that the uh, away team has won. In other words, the home team wins seventy five percent of the time. Five teams in the American have no road wins. Three teams have one road win. Memphis being one of those three. It is hard to win on the road in every league, including the American. How about that? So it is difficult. And uh, we'll see what happens for this Cincinnati matchup coming in. And that's, you know, look, uh, again, I can reminisce for hours. I don't have hours with Dave Wolosian here. I don't even have a long amount of time here about the Cincinnati-Memphis rivalry. But it's, a, it's, it's been a great rivalry for 30 or 40 years for this game coming up at the FedEx Forum on Thursday night. I hearken back. I'm dating myself now. You mentioned Elliott Perry and the Memphis State Tigers 24 nothing on Louisville. I was in school that day for, the, for, for that year and, and in that time. Time period for that rivalry to, to be able to walk away as a student as a student broadcaster and a fan of Memphis State and be able to say I was in school when they were up 24 to nothing at Freedom Hall and it was the lead story on Sports Center that night uh, that's something to beam with pride in well a couple years later Memphis got all the way to the Elite Eight but lost in 1992 with Penny Hardaway leading them as a player uh, in the Elite Eight game for the fourth time in four tries to Cincinnati, to Bob Huggins, Nick Van Exel, and Cincinnati. So the Memphis-Cincinnati rivalry goes back a ways, too, here. Dave Willotion, real quick. Still a 78th meeting. And, um, you know, Huggins and, and now Cronin. And, when, when you know, it's fairly close. Memphis trails 44-43, uh, 44-33. But Memphis has the better of them in Memphis. And, the, you know, this, this goes back to Penny Hardaway, the coach, you know, one year played him four times, lost to him yep. in the Elite Eight. So, you know, you win that game, you go to the Final Four. That was a Nick Van Exel team. Now Van Exel actually is a coach for the Grizzlies. So these two guys play golf with each other in the off season, and they become friends. Uh, they became friends in the NBA. But, you know, that, the thing that rings true about Huggins' teams, Cronin's teams, they're all physical. They both, both coaches recruited types of players that were big, burly, great defensive players, great rebounders. This team only scores 75 points a game, but they only give up 63. Memphis gives uh, scores 83. Uh, and so whichever team has 
the ability to play their style tomorrow will be the team that will win the game. All right. Will I be taking my alma mater, the Tigers, on Three Dog Thursday against Cincinnati? We're going to find out coming up when Kevin Rogers rejoins me in a little bit. Just a couple of minutes left with the voice of the Memphis Tigers. He's been doing this for over 30 years in the Memphis market. Dave Woloshin, I always love coming on the radio with him. I come on on a weekly radio spot with him, so I've got him on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. Penny Hardaway back as the coach. Fascinating. You've been around him now for a few months. Months. He's he's now coached basically two thirds of the season. How surreal has this been? What has it been like interacting with him? Because you covered him and interviewed him as a player. He's back now as the Memphis coach. Wolo. It is. It's interesting because you know you you know a, a kid as a kid, right? And I got to know Penny as a player. He was always a cerebral kid, uh, always really sort of shy to himself. But when he would say something, he was always very interesting. Then, you know, he goes on to be an NBA superstar and Nike does the little penny thing. And he, he really transcends the game. He comes back and I only see him a few times. I've seen him on a golf course a couple of times. He's a great golfer. He's like a two handicap. Um, and, and then I saw him when he gave a million dollars to the Penny Hardaway Hall of Fame. And he's still a modest guy. So I never really got to know him as an adult. Now I'm getting to know him as, a, as an adult. And I find him just fascinating, just delightful. He is still interesting, still says interesting things, sometimes provocative, as, as I'm sure that you've talked about a little bit. But he is a terrific guy. He has made really good adjustments as the year has gone on. When they beat UCF, a week and a half ago, uh, and they and they absolutely took apart the team that was picked to win the league. They beat them by 22 in Memphis. I thought this team was ready to take off. Now, they've been humbled these last two games. What adjustment will he make as he takes on the team that is tied for first, a team that he's got a lot of history with, knows Mick Cronin well, that will be intriguing tomorrow. Yeah, very much so. Taking me back to my college days there with Hardaway and uh, and what they have been able to do. And let's see. I mean, it's, it's, it's also interesting, again, for the audience that's hearing us wherever they are. Memphis has got a great recruiting class coming in. What is it like one of the top guards or one of the top players in high school coming to the Memphis Tigers, right? Uh, coming up soon. So well, the, the future's number, bright. The number one player in the country is a kid Penny actually coached in high school. He was from Nashville, moved to Memphis to play for him last year. His name is James Wiseman. He's a seven-footer. He's a post guy that can, that can come out and stretch the floor. He, he is the number one player in the country. They signed a kid who had originally committed to Kentucky, uh, and then he decommitted, and he is from Olive Branch, Mississippi. His name is DJ Jeffries. He's ranked in the top 25 in the country. And then they got another top 100 guy who also played for Penny in high school. His name is Malcolm Dandridge. And they say there are plenty more to come. Well, let's see. It's a start. Let's see if the Tigers can get something done against Cincinnati, who is the favorite. The conference tournament for the automatic bid is at the FedEx Forum as well for 2019. So that's interesting, too. Listen, I always love talking with you. Uh, you know you know that I do what you do uh, for a living. So here's hoping you don't have to deal with anything like what you had to deal with Saturday where you're on the other end of that kind of losing. I- I've been there before on the negative on the previous thing. So, uh, and you have, too. You've worked all kinds of games. Let's hope the Tigers get their act together. I want my Tigers, you do, too, to get their act together. Let's see if they will against the Bearcats Thursday night. Hey, thanks for spending some time with me here on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. Go Tigers, go, and let's see what happens with Cincinnati, Dave Willotion. 
Always a pleasure. I, I'm going to go out on the line and guarantee you it will not be 27 to 1 <laughs> when we look up with 10 minutes to go. God help us if it is. Wolo, thank you. you you're right. My pleasure. Three Dog Thursday brought to you in part by Paradise Golf. Go to paradise-golf.com slash football. Find out more about how you can save half off up to a $55 value off the Winter Paradise card. If you're coming to West Central Florida to golf, if you're a snowbird, this card basically pays for itself within two times of you playing. Go to paradise-golf.com slash football. Sign up and save with Paradise Golf. Dogs are barking. Who will get it done this week? Three Dog Thursday now continues. Here again is TJ Reeves. College hoops galore. It's what we're all about now that the football season's been put to bed. It is the Three Dog Thursday podcast. Oh, looky here. Uh, I love the inside any time that I get a chance to talk to the guy that runs zagsblog.com, Adam Zagoria, one of the more renowned college basketball writers out of the Northeast in New York. It has been far too long. We're already into a new year, so I get to say Happy New Year in February to you. Uh, how you been? And the college basketball is heating up, which is good. And there's a, there are a lot of different angles we can go here. There's a lot of fascinating things as the season unfolds. Good to have you here, sir. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, TJ. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, it's kind of a slow slog in college basketball through January and, and February, but, you know, a couple more weeks, it'll be March. Before we know it. Okay, you got a taste of March because whenever you go to Cameron, I don't care who they're playing, including if they're playing like a junior high team or an inter-squad game, it is some, some scene. Am I to understand you were there for Duke-St. John's Saturday? That's the first time you had been in Cameron for one of these? It was my first time in Cameron. I'm going to tell you a funny little story. So I went in there, and all the all my colleagues, my media colleagues, said, "Don't wear any nice clothes. <laughs> Don't wear any you know nice jacket, because the students are going to be pressed up against you with their body paint, and you know you don't want to get any body paint on your jacket." So, and on top of that, they said they're going to sweat and slobber all over all over you. So. I went in there um, a little concerned, and I didn't have my sport coat on. And then I noticed there were four nice um, college girls behind me. I didn't see any slobbering um, dudes or anything. And I made I made nice with these young ladies. I got them some bottled water. We had a lovely time. And um, you know, the students are right over you there on press row. They they reach out to cheer and chant. They showed me their Duke. Um, dirt sheet, right, which has all the witty insults of each St. John's player, like Marvin Clark is 24 years old, you know, Shimori's girlfriend has a video of him on uh, YouTube. Um, so, you know, it was, you know, then they proceed to insult all the St. John's players. Um, but it was really a tremendous experience, and um, you know I, I can't believe it took me this long to get them. It's something else. I have been in there on uh, two occasions, both for games with North Carolina. I'm not trying to one up you, and, and it, but it is some scene no matter when you go. And the funny thing is when you were saying that is, okay, you can talk about a lot of student sections that have the body paint that's going to get on you or slobber on you or sweat on you, but these are ones that have 1,600 on their SAT, and they're going to end up running companies, running Fortune 500 firms. I mean, (laughs) they are the future leaders of America in the body paint, heckling Shimori Ponds and the St. John's Red Storm. 
Yeah, and it was one of their funny things was on the cheat sheet, St. John's bills itself as New York's team. You know, that'll come as a, sh- a shock to half our campus when they get home uh, to Westchester, you know, <laughs> which is here. Westchester's here in New York uh, State. Um, so, you know, it was all very funny. And then, you know, I'm doing another story just about kind of fans who travel to see Zion and Duke. I mean, I talked to this couple that's been to eight games at Cameron this year already, and they travel from Haverford, Pennsylvania, and they're going to go to four more. So, um, you know, people really want to come see Zion play. And the and yes, he's the latest one of uh, of all the great players that they have. We'll get to him here in a couple of seconds. But again, for the audience that's hearing us here, one of the things that I was struck by, and I wonder what your impression is, you see it on TV, but until you walk in there, you don't realize it is not your traditional spread out arena like the NBA arenas are now. It, it amazes you how small, at least me, how small it is yeah. and how many people they cram in there, Adam. What are your thoughts about that being in there? Yeah, man. I mean, look, you and I have both been to a bunch of Final Fours now, hung out at the pool at the Final Four. <laughs> That's right. You know, and, <laughs> you know the, the Final Four is, you know, they're cramming 70,000, 80,000 people into a football stadium. And, you know, the atmosphere is just not the same. I mean, you walk into Cameron and it's whatever it is, 9,000 or something. Um, it's just an incredible environment. It's totally packed. Everybody's right on top of the action. Um, you know, so it's too bad that the final four can't just be in like a, you know, 20,000 seat, uh, arena as opposed to a stadium, but that's a, that's another conversation. Of course. And it doesn't seem like that it holds nine. It seems like it holds like 6,500 or six. Uh, it's incredible how many people get jammed in there and how hard the tickets are and the fact that there yeah. are about uh, easily 500 more students in that student section than should be allowed because they're wedged in on top of each other and don't really have a seat, quote unquote. Um, yeah, it's wild. All right, so enough about the building and the atmosphere. You saw Duke firsthand courtside this past weekend. Tell me more, not just about Zion, but what you saw. Well, I mean, look, I think that there's a handful of teams that right now you could say, you know, are favored to win it all. Certainly Tennessee's in the conversation. Um, Gonzaga's in the conversation. I think Michigan's probably in the conversation. But, you know, that Duke team is just, you know, they're just tremendously exciting to watch. That You know, we've never seen anything like Zion before. You know, it's almost like RJ and Cam Reddish. I mean, RJ Barrett is a really fine player and was the projected number one pick, you know, until everyone saw Zion. And it's almost like RJ is an, is an afterthought. I mean, you know, that that's a little strong. But there's so much attention on Zion. Dickie B, the whole broadcast but St. John's, I was told, was talking about Zion. And everyone's so caught up in that that it's almost like you forget about, hey, RJ, Cam Reddish, Trey Jones might be the best uh, you know, defender in the country. So there's so much hype around them. Um, and I certainly think they have the talent to win it all. It'll you know, be interesting, the freshman on a big stage in the, in the NCAA tournament. Um, but I think, as you and I have talked about before, really only two teams – that rely primarily on, on one and duns have won a title Duke in 15 and Kentucky in 12, you know, other than that, it's been older teams, Villanova, North Carolina, which would make you think that, you know, Gonzaga or a Tennessee or, or a Nevada, which are very older experienced teams 
um, have a better chance. But, you know, I think the ideal Final Four would be a mix of, you know, Duke and a couple older teams and, uh, you know, you get a little bit of everything. You know, in speaking about Zion Williamson, and this is why Adam Zagoria has great insight for us here as part of the Three Dog Thursday podcast, uh, you were around him really for several years through his development, high school, and otherwise his recruitment. What was that part of the process like? First of all, I think, you know, I, like everybody, I've been covering recruiting, you know, 20 years now. And, you know, it's very rare at this point that a kid has a press conference or makes an announcement and, you know, I and the other recruiting guys don't have a pretty good idea where he's going to go, much less be totally shocked. And I was actually in a hotel room with my son uh, whenever that was in Jan- January a year ago when he announced for Clemson. And, you know, I was I was shocked. I had a I mean, I'm sorry, when he announced for Duke, I had a, you know, a pre-story written, uh, one for Clemson, I think, and maybe one for South Carolina. But I, I didn't think he was going to Duke. And I know other guys like Evan Daniels and the industry were surprised. So, you know, that was, that was shocking. And then, you know, the other thing is everybody knew he was this big YouTube sensation and a dunker, but you're never quite sure how that's going to translate to the college game. There were questions before the season. I talked to NBA guys that were worried about his weight. You know, he's 270, 280 now. How much is he going to weigh in five years when he's in the NBA and he's a grown man? You know, and all those concerns seem to be out the window now. Plus, he's shown that he can, you know, shoot the three-pointer a little bit. You know, he doesn't have to be Steph Curry out there or, um, you know, you know, Damian Lillard. He just has to show that if you leave him alone behind the line, you know, he can make it. So you got to force defenses to close out a little bit. And, um, you know, you combine that with this his phenomenal athleticism and grace and, you know, his rebounding and his blocking shots. It's, the whole package is just incredible. You know, we have here in New York City – a guy, Mike Francesa, famous for oh, yeah. the Mad Dog radio host. And he was on the radio saying, you know, Zion's going to have a very rough transition to the NBA and he's not going to fit in the modern NBA. And, you know, he just he just sounds like a cranky old guy who's out of touch. Well, and, and you know, there's obviously varying opinions on that. Uh, and you and you are a great resource here to go back in history. Uh, there have been comparisons. I mean, some have, some have, uh, have combined it and called him a Sharkley, a Shaq-Barkley combination. When Barkley played in the 80s, Barkley was not as tall and not really even probably, eh, maybe he was as big at one point and heavy as what Zion is, but certainly not as tall, but definitely athletic at that size, playing in the low post, dunking. So we've seen similar guys. And Shaq was much bigger, obviously, and more dominant as a low post player. But we've seen big physical guys in in college. The intriguing thing is he can really move. He's really athletic. He defends. Yeah. Uh, that that's uh, that's another intriguing part of this. But what about the comparisons to Barkley? Uh, did they fit? Is it apt? Well, I mean, I thought first of all, I thought it was very funny when Bayham, you know, Bayham said after the Duke game that you know he's like Barkley, except that. Uh, he's not as fat, and um, you know, I think he said Charles could shoot a little better. Or he basically just said he's not as fat as Barkley was. <laughs> but of course, you know, Bar- Barkley wasn't fat in college. He just got a little heavier in the NBA. You know, I think our our friend Mike DeCourcy from the Sporting News had it spot on. He had a really great in-depth column where he went through all the potential comparisons. You know, LeBron, Barkley, uh, whoever else he's been compared to and um, Rodney Rogers 
and just basically went through how each comparison was sort of flawed. You know, none of these guys really weighed as much as, uh, I mean, Zion's listed at 285, maybe he's down to 270. Now, none of these guys weighed that much in college and, and didn't have the, the skill set he has. So I, I would refer people to Mike's column, which I think kind of takes that. No down. doubt. You know, no, no, one, no one has seen anyone like this kid. Yeah, you know, another name that came to mind when you were talking about that, and I've been thinking about this too, Larry Johnson at UNLV, but Johnson was not right. as thick. He was probably a better shooter. He was definitely more physically mature than most of the guys he was playing, but I don't even think that's an apt comparison with, uh, with Zion's girth, his size, and how well he can move at that size. So, uh, you know, another follow-up to this is you were talking to him after the game. Media talks to him all the time after the game uh, because you're in New York and the Knicks are awful, which everybody knows. And everybody's wondering, are, are they tanking? Uh, what is it, trying for Zion? Is that is that the new tanking one there? They all have different phrases. Yeah, that the I, Knicks may be trying for Zion uh, there, and you talk to him about it. Yeah, well, first of all, me and my colleague Josh Newman coined the phrase Stop trying for Zion. Stop trying for Zion. I see. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And as far as I know, we had that out in September. And, you know, between you and me, I mean, now ESPN, everyone's using it. You know, we really should have patented that. <laughs> and like, like, like Pat Riley did the three-peat because everybody's, you know, borrowing and stealing our phrase. But that's another story. Um, but, yeah, so the New York Post last week had a back page with Zion Williamson, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie, all in Knicks jerseys, um, you know, basically saying this was the Knicks, um, you know, fantasy for next season. And, um, you know, normally when you ask these guys, you know, about certain NBA teams or whatever, they just say, well, look, I'll be happy to be drafted by any team. Whoever takes me, I'll be happy. Um, and he kind of said that. And then I told him about the post thing. And he said, oh, yeah, that would be dope to play with KD and Kyrie. So, <laughs> no. So I wrote that story and that got picked up. And, you know, obviously, look, there are very long odds that the Knicks are going to get any of these players, much less two or three of them. Um, you know, they, you could argue they have a better chance of getting Durant or Kyrie than they do of Zion. They really only have a 14% chance of Zion right now. But, you know, that said, the Knicks are tanking in a big way. They have the worst record in the NBA. And, you know, their fans are, are going to hang on to something. Voice of Adam Zagoria. Love his insight. The Zags blog. He also writes with the New York Times. Uh, he's been covering the college game for three decades or more here. Love love the insight on all of this. Okay, so at the time we're talking, we come off the St. John's upset Tuesday night against Marquette, uh, which, uh, again, for Chris Mullen's team, a great start at 14-1. and one. But people like me have been saying, prove something in the Big East. And they had been struggling at 2-4 at and four in their last six games. A lot of those Big East losses, lost to Duke on Saturday. Now they pull one out with uh, Shamori Pons getting the game-winning layup late in the game. Huge win for them at Marquette. Uh, and, and really gets St. John's back in the conversation to maybe be a tournament team down the road when you get wins like that. Yeah, I mean, look, the big picture here in New York is that, uh, you know, it'll be a failure for Chris Mullen and St. John's if they don't make the tournament this year. They were picked fourth in the Big East. They have by far the best team of Mullen's tenure. You know, Shamori Pons is the Big East preseason player of the year. Uh, Mustafa Heron is immediately eligible after coming over from Auburn, um, where he was a big factor for Auburn last year. Justin Simon and uh, Marvin Clark are transfers from Arizona and, and Michigan State. 
So they really have very experienced, you know, older guys. They're built with a lot of transfers. And if they don't make the tournament, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions here in New York about Mullen's future. And, you know, if you can't get to the tournament with this team and with Chris Mullen as your coach, you know, I'm not sure where St. John's goes from here. That said, um, it was a huge win against Marquette. You know, it was really their, you know, they're really only marquee wins or, you know, uh, resume wins this year are their two wins over Marquette. Marquette is eight and two in the Big East. Both losses are to St. John's. Um, so generally, you have to finish at least nine and nine, ten and eight in the Big East to make the tournament. I think St. John's right now is projected like an eleven or twelve seed. So they're five and five. They're you know they need to keep winning and go four and uh, what is that five, uh, five and three the rest of the way to get to ten and eight. Um, you know, and then probably make some noise in the in the tournament, Big East tournament. We'll see if they are able to do that. And, of course, Marquette and Villanova looming in a game between the top two teams in the Big East coming Saturday in Milwaukee. So we're interested to talk more about that in a few moments. Just another moment or two with Adam Zagoria. I want to give you an opportunity to promote something that you're doing. Have you already put the piece out about Hofstra? Is it coming soon? That Hofstra has been a great story in the New York area, in the CAA. Uh, tell me more about the uh, the the Hofstra basketball program and what they're doing right now, nine and one in the conference, and why you're writing about them. Yeah, I had a story in um, yesterday, Tuesday's New York Times about Hofstra. Basically, that um, you know Tennessee now has the nation's longest winning streak at 16 games, but if Hofstra had beaten Northeastern at, uh, in Boston on Saturday, they'd have the longest winning streak at 17. They lost. Their streak was at 16. But they really only um, were getting less than 2,000 fans a game at home, in part because their students had a very long winter break, about six weeks. Um, the student body at Hofstra doesn't seem to have really you know, caught on to what's going on there. But they have a terrific player in Justin Wright Foreman, a 6'2 senior guard from Queens, who's third in the country at about 26 points a game. Um, you know, they're in a one-bid league, and they're pretty much going to have to win their CAA conference tournament in Charleston, South Carolina in March, you know, where they could have to play Charleston in front of a hostile crowd and or Northeastern again um, to, to make the tournament. But, you know, they're, they're a team to, to keep an eye on. They, you know, they won 16 straight, and I think they're about a 12 seed in some mock uh, Mocks right now. All right. We'll see what happens with the Hofstra Pride. And again, a CAA conference that saw George Mason uh, 10, 12 years ago make a run into the Final Four. Love love that part of college basketball. We start getting familiar when we're talking about underdogs, about teams, especially when we get to tournament time, that can win a game or two or like uh, Loyola Chicago win four of them and find their way into the Final Four. Just one more on that. That's what I mean, Adam. That's what makes this time of the year so great because you can be a powerhouse like Duke, or or we're looking at a program like Kansas right now, where everybody's questioning what's going on there. You know, you got powerhouse programs, but then you got little guys too, like a Hofstra that gets in the mix, or a, a VCU, or a George Mason, or a Butler, or on and on. Yeah, and it's really like, you know, these teams that come out of a one-bid league, you know, if you're, you know, if you're Kansas or whoever, you know, even even St. John's, you're going to have multiple opportunities in your conference schedule to play ranked teams and, you know, uh, get the quadrant one wins or whatever the current terminology is. You know, if you're Hofstra in the CAA, you're not going to have those opportunities because there are no 
ranked teams in your league, really. So they pretty much have to, you know, run the table, win their conference tournament. And if they don't, they're going to get shut out. I mean, you know, we saw a couple of years ago, Monmouth did everything they were supposed to do. They beat UCLA, USC, Georgetown, and they still didn't get in. So, um, you know, it's a lot more pressure when it's, when it's a one-bid league. No doubt about that. They're fighting for their lives all the way down the stretch run of February and March just to get in the tournament and uh, and make it happen and see what happens once they do win and get in. So it's a lot of fun. Hey, is Kansas real quick? I know Michigan State with a loss at Illinois. Kansas with another loss at Kansas State on Tuesday night at the time we're talking. Are they going to get their act together? Is Kansas in some real trouble right now and may not win the Big 12? Yeah, I'd say, you know, Kansas and Michigan State both struggling right now. Kansas has lost three out of four. They're in fourth place in the Big 12. Michigan State, um, I think, you know, they've lost a couple here to unranked teams, including Illinois. I'd say Kansas of the two, there's real question marks about, you know, they've won the Big 12 14 years in a row. They don't have their big guys now with Azubuke and D'Souza for the rest of the season. Um, you know, they've lost six true road games this season. And if you look at Bill Self's quotes last night, he was like, hey, look, man, we can't even talk about being in a race for the Big 12 or competing for the Big 12 title. We just got to try to win a game and, you know, get his freshman playing well, seniors to lead. So, you know, this is I think this is maybe the year Kansas doesn't win the Big 12. It could be. And you look at Iowa State coming on, uh, which we're talking about. You look at Texas Tech, Kansas State, that was in the Elite Eight last year. People don't remember. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there are are teams that are there that could maybe take this thing and knock them off. Uh, It's been been a phenomenal run of dominance for them in the Big 12 to either outright win it or have the share of the title. Listen, I always love the breakdown. Again, we're going to promote Zag's blog, the Hofstra story in the New York Times. Uh, You obviously wrote a bunch about Duke and Zion Williamson off this past weekend. What else can we promote, Adam Zagori? Are we good? I think we're good. Just uh, follow me on Twitter, and I you know, hope everybody's doing well out there. Listen, uh, follow this guy because he's fantastic on the College Hoops, at Adam Zagoria. Go to zagsblog.com. More on the College Hoops, more on the New York angle to it. Love it. Promise me that we get to do this again. I don't know that we'll be poolside in Minneapolis if we're all there at the Final Four. It might be a little <laughs> cold, but we get to do this again somewhere down the road, I hope. Thank you. Yeah, we have to find an indoor pool in Minneapolis, Tuesday. Coming back in once more to talk some college hoops. Had a lot of fun with our guests so far with Adam Zagoria of zagsblog.com and also Dave Woloshin, the Memphis play-by-play guy. So a lot of college basketball in the brain. Let's call back in Kevin Rogers, senior handicapper, vegasinsider.com. All right, time for you and I to roll the sleeves up and get ready to talk some college basketball, not just for Thursday night. We're going to make a couple of underdog predictions, but we're going to look ahead to Saturday and what are some huge showdowns, and I'll get a thought or two for you uh, from you on a couple of these games. Um, uh, just as a general comment, I mean, we we did talking about Duke before you've come back on. They look outstanding. Uh, they've got the showdown with Virginia coming up. Kentucky really rolling. What's up with Kansas? Michigan State suddenly looks vulnerable uh, with the injury that they have to Langford on their team, and then they suffered the uh, the Tuesday night loss to Illinois. So some things starting to take shape real quick, Kevin, as we bring you back in. Yeah, Duke playing very well. Obviously, the game against Virginia, see if they can get the season sweep uh, in that one. will be tough going to Charlottesville. And you mentioned Kentucky, who's just been outstanding since losing that game to Alabama and, and frankly, since losing that opener to Kansas, that they have been 
great. They lost a close game to Stephen Hall, lost a close game to Alabama. So they're really hitting on all cylinders right now. And then you mentioned Michigan State, who is going backwards at the wrong time. And, and you say, how do you lose to Indiana as a heavy favorite? How do you lose to Illinois as a heavy favorite? But they're uh, right now going in the wrong direction. The problem with Kansas is they can win at home. They just can't play at Allen Fieldhouse in the NCAA tournament. So that, that's kind of <laughs> the big issue, that, that right now on the road, they've been terrible. They've led at K-State uh, at halftime, couldn't hold on to the second half. They lost to Texas. So, yeah, they can take care of their business at home all they want, but until they start to win on the road, they're definitely a question mark. Yep, lost to Kentucky uh, at Kentucky, lost at Texas Tech. So Kansas struggling a bit. And, again, the the, the uh, Langford injury has really changed things. They've still got Cassius Winston for Michigan State, but now that, uh, that game coming Saturday with Wisconsin rematching Michigan going to be very interesting about the top of the Big Ten. More on that in a second. All right, so let's take a look at a couple of underdogs. That's what we do on Three Dog Thursday. An underdog prediction from each of us in the Thursday night games. Kevin, where do you want to go? Where do you want to begin? Well, the last few weeks we've won in Conference USA. We're going to get out of that and go to the Horizon League. So I figured we'd, we'd take a step Love up. Love it. Uh, Conference USA to the Horizon League. You know, you're mentioning Michigan and Michigan State and all these other schools. We'll stay in the state of Michigan, but with Oakland as they're taking on Wright State and Oakland's getting eight in this game. Oakland is playing a revenge game, looking to avenge a 16-point home loss to Oakland. That are going to Wright State. And Oakland four and one. ATS is a dog in conference play. Wright State only one and three is uh, a home favorite in Horizon League play. I just think that Oakland here that they get revenge on Wright State and pick up the cover. And again, I have worked the Horizon League championship game for TuneIn each of the last four years. Wright State, the defending champions, defending conference tournament champions, went in the NCAA tournament last year. They've got an NBA caliber big body prospect named Loudon Love. But uh, but Oakland usually is a team that can go up and down the floor, and they're the second uh, tied for second right now uh, in the conference um, uh, right now with Wright State. So this is a very interesting game on Thursday night in Dayton, Ohio. So you will go Oakland Grizzlies. I like that. I should make mention that to this point right now, the last couple of weeks, we are four for four on these Thursday night picks. Uh, Kevin has gotten two Conference USA games correctly. I got a Pac-12 game, and then last week had Temple against Houston. They didn't win, but they covered in the American Conference. So we're four for four on these picks. So pay pay attention for Thursday night. I'm going to go back to the Big Ten, by the way, and I like the Iowa Hawkeyes uh, in this matchup with Indiana. I mentioned Assembly Hall earlier in the show. Iowa and Indiana playing on Thursday evening in in uh, Big Ten action in Bloomington, and Iowa the small one-point favorite here. The Hawkeyes are 6-2 and two in their last eight games, had the upset of Michigan back last Friday night at home. Indiana, as you mentioned, came from behind and beat Michigan State at home in the overtime win now that both teams are well rested they're now playing on thursday evening i will take the hawkeyes here in uh in this matchup after that impressive win the other night um let's see what happens here tyler cook averaging 16 a game as a big man uh for this iowa team for fran mccaffrey's team i know that uh indiana snapped a seven game losing streak kevin with that win over michigan state 
I think Iowa finds a way to win this game. Obviously, it's only a one-point game. I'll take the Iowa Hawkeyes on Thursday night, so I'll go Big Ten for the first time on Three Dog Thursday. So uh, in terms of games for the third underdog, we do not have the lines in front of us for the Saturday matchups as of yet at the time that we're taping the show here. I'll stay away from Memphis against Cincinnati that Dave Wilotion was talking about. My Tigers getting three and a half at home with the Bearcats Thursday night. I don't know about that one, but if we go to Saturday, a game to keep an eye on. I believe that Kentucky is going to be at least a four or five point favorite against Mississippi State. I think Mississippi State may keep that game close, if not win that game with Kentucky on Saturday. I know the Wildcats have won nine in a row. They've covered, I think, something like five times in a row or six times in a row. That is a tough place to play. Humphrey Coliseum, it is a national television CBS game on Saturday. Keep an eye on Mississippi. Mississippi State against Kentucky in the SEC for Saturday. Kevin, Duke, Virginia on Saturday night. I know you're not, we don't have a line in front of us. Is your speculation that Duke might be the underdog in that game at, at Virginia? I mean, oh, who knows? Or will be pick yeah. What do you think? No, I got to think that Virginia is going to be a favorite uh, in this game just because of the home field, the home field, the home court advantage in this one, and they played to a close game the first time around. I just think that uh, it'll be a close game. I'm sure Virginia probably laying maybe less than four, but uh, I got to believe in this one that Virginia at home. That you know we talk about four or five teams in the country that no doubt about it they always have home court advantage, and Virginia is one of those teams. All right, and this is starting a stretch uh, where again Duke will play in this game on the road. We'll play at Louisville. We'll play at North Carolina. We'll play at the Carrier Dome against Syracuse. So some significant road games for the rest of February and early March for them. Let's see how they do. Do you have another one that intrigues you just real quick? I mean, Villanova Marquette, first place in the Big East. That one at Milwaukee. St. John's beat Marquette Tuesday night. Villanova undefeated in the Big East. Uh, that that one also, another one on FS1, on, on actually on Fox, on uh, on Saturday out of the Big East. That's going to be an interesting one to watch as well. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. And, uh, you know, Villanova has had a great start so far in the Big East. You mentioned Marquette getting tripped up by St. John's. They've, they've been great, Marquette, in the Big East, except for playing St. John's, who they've lost to twice. So I'm glad, or I'm sure they're glad to get them off the schedule. But uh, I'll give you another one, too, that uh, I know we mentioned at the top with Michigan and Wisconsin, that revenge game for Michigan. And I, and I, you know me, that I love going against these teams that are in the revenge mode. Now they're going to Ann Arbor after Wisconsin won in Madison the first time around. And Wisconsin's played, uh, you know, very well of late. So, you know, the Badgers, I think, can be worth a look. There's an underdog in Ann Arbor. All right. So let's see what happens in that revenge game at the top of the Big Ten there in that one. Okay, so some college basketball games for Saturday. We're big-time college basketball from here on out on Three Dog Thursday. Uh, We want to say thank you to the audience that's been finding us by the tens of thousands. We had the best January ever in the four years that we've been doing Three Dog Thursday. We had roughly, Kevin, 20% more audience this January than any previous January. Let's keep it rolling here in February on Three Dog Thursday. And a big part of it is the help from our friends at Vegas Insider, where Kevin is a senior handicapper. Tell them more about the great info. I know football season is done, but that doesn't mean you're done at Vegas Insider real quick. Yeah, absolutely not. We still have a long way to go. Even though football's in the uh, in the rearview mirror, we still have NBA ongoing. The trade deadline. There's going to be some things moving and shaking with that. Also, college basketball now coming down. You know, down the stretch this month, heading into March Madness. So we have that. Baseball's going to start soon. Hockey's still rolling on. So even if football is over with, there's still a lot to check out. 
VegasInsider.com. Also, check us out on Twitter at TwitVI. And follow this man at VI Rogers. Follow this show at Three Dog Thursday. Always love the insight of Kevin Rogers here as part of Three Dog Thursday. He'll go with the Oakland Grizzlies on Thursday night. I don't know when you're listening to the show. He's got Oakland out of the Horizon League against Wright State. On Thursday, I'll take Iowa against Indiana in the Big Ten. And my other pseudo-underdog is Mississippi State. Watch them Saturday with Kentucky as the third underdog here uh, against Kentucky in the SEC. Some great college basketball. Duke, Virginia, Wisconsin-Michigan, Villanova-Marquette, and on and on down the list for Saturday. And uh, the different games, number one, Tennessee hosting Florida, Louisville at Florida State. Uh, Games galore that we're going to be interested in for Saturday and for this weekend. Kevin, great job as always. Thank you for the conversation on not only on the Super Bowl, but the college basketball that we'll be talking about. We'll catch up with you next week, sir. All right, TJ, thank you. There is Kevin Rogers. My thanks also to Dave Lotion, the voice of the Memphis Tigers. Memphis and Cincinnati Thursday. Let's see if my Tigers have bounced back. Maybe they have. Maybe you know that already. Uh, Adam Zagori as well. The Zagsblog.com and the New York Times talking some New York basketball in the college ranks. I'm TJ Reeves. Subscribe to the show. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Look for us on Three Dog Thursday. Find us through RadioInfluence.com as well. That'll do it for this edition. Enjoy the college hoops. Thank you for being with us on Three Dog Thursday. Bye. This is a tennis with an accent quick fix on Radio Influence. We are talking with Sasa Oslo, who was down under in Australia covering the Australian Open Championships for Sports Club. Uh, welcome, Sasa. Thanks for doing this. So I know players don't like to talk about this. Uh, not sure if this question was asked, but he's already, you know, in the conversation for repeating uh, four majors in a row, which will make him, you know, quite unique. He's already done it once. Since uh, Labor, he was the only man to held all four, and now he can do a second Novak uh, slam. And uh, what is your opinion? Uh, you think this conversation is a little too early, but, you know, we can't escape it. You think it's just between him and Rafa, or I know Clay season is a couple of months away. Dominic team is supposedly, you know, down with some sort of a mono-like symptom, I heard. Not sure if it's, uh, uh, it's you know, what kind of story is out there. But uh, it's definitely a two-man race right now. What is your view of the upcoming clay season? Uh, The question was asked, of course. I mean, it's logical. It's only logical to ask that question when he's won three in a row again. I mean, it is still far away, but uh, I don't see see Novak dropping down. And I don't see... And I I can... I mean, Rafa hasn't played in five months leading up to this tournament. And I think uh, everyone kind of forgotten that uh, because of the way he played throughout the tournament. And he certainly, I mean, Novak played lights out. I mean, uh, he would have beaten best Nadal on that day, but it, it wasn't the 100% from Rafa. And I expect him to, to do what he has always done when he's coming back from an injury, and that is to slowly pick up his confidence on clay and to reach his highest level uh, in Paris. So it's going to be a very, very difficult task for Novak to, to beat him. Uh, as you said, uh, as of this moment, it looks like a two-man race. But I think Zverev is due for a breakthrough somewhere. He has to do it somewhere. And I mean, he's too good to to never to never make that breakthrough. And he's pretty good on clay. Tennis with an accent with Sakib Ali and Matt Zemek can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.